The Australia Together podcast is brought to you by Australian Community Futures Planning. We're helping Australians work together to plan a better future for their nation. Visit us at www.austcfp.com.au. Hi, my name's Bronwyn Kelly. I'm the founder of Australian Community Futures Planning, or ACFP, and this is the Australia Together podcast. Today, we're providing the second of four podcast episodes in our series on Saving Australian Democracy and Sovereignty by Building a New Constitution. The series contains a reading of a four-part essay in which I discuss how Australians are being dragged into a full ceding of their sovereignty over our country and how, if we do nothing to reverse this, we will end up losing our democracy itself. To help prevent this loss, I suggest that Australia needs a new type of constitution in which the people of Australia will have a reasonable and rightful share of power and I tackle some questions that, if we answer them well, should offer us a way to build this constitution together. In episode 40, I began setting out why Australians need to build this new type of constitution and today I will expand on this by discussing what needs to be fixed in our democracy if we are to be able to establish it as a form of state and governance that fosters political equality for the electors. I examine the immaturity of our democratic arrangements and the societal and political dysfunction this immaturity has caused. From there, I suggest that the challenge is to build a new arrangement of democracy, one suitable for a 21st century multicultural nation of political equals, capable of independently and peacefully governing itself. That new arrangement will require us to build a political system where we are enabled as a collective to function cohesively, but without the need to wash away our diversity. I then introduce the concept of the need for Australians to develop what I call non-exclusive terms of trust with those they elect to federal parliament, and I begin discussion of how these terms can be built by collaboration. Here's part two of the essay. What's wrong with our democracy? Short answer, it's exclusive and it prohibits self-determination. Australia's democracy, like that of most other countries, is caught in an immature phase of development, one that reduces it almost entirely to the process of elections and voting. But for as long as we continue to think of elections and voting as the equivalent of democracy, we will remain stuck in the inadequate form of governance that fully disempowers voters and makes those seeking election fully hostage to anyone who can buy them off or threaten them with loss of office. This system creates an entrenched, excessively powerful elite, which is extremely dangerous when the electors do not stipulate what the power they're handing over can be used for. And our problem in Australia is that, as electors, we never stipulate that. Why then we should expect that things will turn out as we wish is a complete mystery, but still we carry on in the same system of blind faith that those we elect will act in the public interest, even though we've not bothered to spell that out, much less encoded into terms of trust we might issue to those we elect. 
Political philosophers and historians know that something needs to be done about the inadequacy of a simple reliance on elections as a democratic process. The best that can be said about elections is that they save a bit of time for busy modern citizens who don't have the leisure to indulge in full-time or even part-time politics. But when offering suggestions on how to solve the disbenefits of merely representative government, the thinkers who do have a bit more time for politics usually confine themselves to suggestions that simply tinker with the mechanical parts of voting systems. In this, they tend to concentrate on electoral reform, for instance by considering preferential versus proportional systems of voting, or they focus on reduction of the possibility of corruption in elections, transparency and real-time reporting of political donations, prohibition of political donations, tighter regulation of false political advertising, the establishment of fixed terms for parliaments, abolition of the Senate or expansion of it to provide dedicated seats, say, for Indigenous representation, lowering the voting age or reorganising the basis of representation itself to base it, say, on sortition or on age groups rather than geographical boundaries. Some others focus on expanding access to representation in Parliament by independents and minor parties, and for that purpose, some promote the use of more participatory forms of policy development and candidate selection, such as the kitchen cabinets we saw in the selection of Teal candidates for the 2022 federal election. All this, particularly the kitchen cabinet grassroots approach to candidate selection, is valuable but it is also based on the idea that a simple tweaking of the way the numbers game part of democracy can be run will deliver a clear sense of both the public interest and who is best placed to serve it in government. However, these mechanical adjustments have little, if any, potential to add wisdom to either the election system itself or the governments formed by it. They offer nothing that would turn the system of merely representative government into a system of truly responsible government, one where the executive government is fully responsible to the parliament and through that to the people and the public interest. They offer nothing in terms of clarity about the sort of nation we want to build and what we want our governments to be responsible for. In this arrangement, no well-intentioned candidate or established politician is any the wiser, and poorly intentioned politicians retain complete freedom to be unaccountable for any irresponsible behaviour or actions that are contrary to Australian values and the national interest. For as long as we stumble on in this reduced, dumbed-down system of democracy, electors and the elected alike will be stuck in a machine we can't control at all as if our lives should be confined to zero-sum games where there will always be winners and losers, as if our lives are worth no more than the luck of the draw each time around in an election. This is not a democratic system capable of fostering the public interest. It is simply a system of majority rule, or more accurately, majority selection of unaccountable rulers, which is not the same as democracy at all. Such a diminished form of democracy might be fine were it to take account of agreed national values, goals and human rights and obligations. 
but majority rule in the absence of a pre-agreed national project that acknowledges our rights and fits with our values and goals is at best simply haphazard and at worst totally senseless if only because it makes no place for the aspirations and rights of diverse groups and individuals, all with an equally legitimate interest in being equal members of the state. Instead, it admits into our governance systems the premise that electors are not all equal members of the state and that the human rights of some are less legitimate than those of others, at least to the extent that they can be put to one side for three or four years if a government wishes or permanently, if a government can manage it. So, until it can be demonstrated that Australia's election system is conducive to political equality, our governance system cannot be considered a democracy capable of serving or protecting the multiplicity of legitimate interests of its members. If we are to rethink the options for achieving a fuller form of democracy that actually respects all its members and through that affords us greater control over our destiny as a nation of political equals, it will not suffice to simply tweak the way the mechanical numbers game is played in elections. For that reason, it's important to dig more deeply into the causes of systemic democratic failure. Wonderful thinkers in this space like Bruce Schneier and David Runciman have sensed the need for a first principles analysis of the problem, although they too tend to be drawn back into asserting that to find a way past the limits of the mechanistic numbers game and the tyranny of the transitory majorities it produces, we must somehow find a way to either A, align our disparate interests so that there is no longer a need to cater to their diversity, no matter how legitimate all those interests might be, or by contrast, B, reconcile what Professor Runciman calls the paradox of modernity. What he means by this is that if we want to overcome the weaknesses of merely mechanistic forms of democracy, we must find a way to live with being two contradictory things at once, two things he seems to assume are inherently and inescapably incompatible. He asks, quote, how can we live with the fact that we are required all the time to be individuals, to be personalities, to be persons with rights, and also to be subsumed to the collective, to belong to groups, to be shaped by our social conditioning. Unquote. This is indeed a central question of modernity one which Margaret Thatcher tried to put aside simply by decreeing that there is no society, there are only individuals. Her answer was to simply get rid of one of the supposed antagonists. Needless to say, neither society nor individuals obliged by disappearing in response to her assertion, leaving the question of how to establish a political system that allows us to be two supposedly contradictory things at once dangling unanswered in our midst. To this day, the question of how to achieve a productive coexistence of individuals and societies, or of people and the state, remains unresolved. The question, however, is not one that can be solved simply by tweaking the way elections are conducted, because elections are not about either a reconciliation or peaceful coexistence of disparate interests – 
they're about dispensing entirely, at least for a period, with inconvenient individual and minority group interests. They're about dispensing, if at all possible, with the most fundamental of all human rights, self-determination. But if tweaking the election system is not the solution, what is? Is there another way to resolve the paradox of modernity and thereby find a way to be these two apparently contradictory things at once? It may be that there is a way to resolve it if we slightly reorient the assumptions behind it. The paradox so described assumes that diverse individuals and collective societies have interests that are inherently and inescapably incompatible, which is to say that differences between individuals and the collective are mutually exclusive and cannot coexist. It is to say, resignedly, that we will always be at war with ourselves, or more specifically, that the interests of some cannot be met unless the interests of others are set aside or extinguished. It assumes that diverse interests cannot be productively integrated and must cancel each other out. In this, it assumes that the interests of minorities must be declared illegitimate and by means of something as inhumanly mechanical as an election result. We have to get past that crucially incorrect assumption because it is killing us, both as individuals and as cohesive societies. The solution many will pose to this is to look for common ground on issues where there is conflict. But all too often, that leads to exclusion of the interests of minorities, no matter how legitimate they may be. It can also lead to the exclusion of the interests of the majority, as can be seen in the case of Australia's climate wars. In that case, the interests of the vast majority of the population were discarded for well more than a decade in Australia in favour of the interests of the mining lobby. They are still being discarded. These exclusions occur at various scales because the issues on which common ground may be found will always be quite a small proportion of the full array of issues being faced by both individuals and the collective. And the greater the diversity of a society, the fewer the issues on which common ground may be reached. Some groups organise themselves quite well to find that common ground, one issue at a time, by establishing citizens' juries or assemblies or other forms of open engagement like the Uluru Dialogue. These participatory forms of democracy often produce wonderful agreements and wisdom. But once an issue is funnelled back into the arena of politics, especially national politics, the consensus of these dialogues is often discarded. The common ground that can be reached on a small scale is often not sustainable on a national scale, and if the wisdom generated by the participants requires a settlement in law or policy in the clearing houses of the national parliament or executive government, the voice and wisdom of the community is lucky to survive at all. In politics, in the national arena... We don't agree on many things, particularly when it comes to the economy and the natural environment. As such, the option of aligning our common interests and then confining ourselves to acting only on the issues where we have settled on common ground does not offer us a reliable or efficient way of building a cohesive and inclusive democracy. On the contrary, 
if we opted to confine ourselves to that approach, we would probably have to accept that we will never find a way to live together as a nation of equals, one in which Anthony Albanese would say, leaves no one behind. We would have to accept that we will leave the vast majority of difficult issues unattended to, even though we know the answers. We would have to accept the Thatcherite solution of asserting that there is no society, meaning that there is no dealing with our problems as a society. In that, we would have to accept the loss of any benefits that come from collective effort. That really is not a useful option. It makes more problems than it solves. But if we accept that the search for common ground is not a particularly useful means of achieving social cohesion, especially at a national level, how feasible will it be to make a success of the other option left to us by the thinkers, the option of living with the paradox of modernity, of being two contradictory things at once, that is, diverse, distinct individuals, as well as uniform collectives where diversity is washed away? The thinkers have not yet come up with an answer to that, but perhaps it is the question that is the problem. If they have not come up with an answer to the paradox of modernity, after the passage of decades since Thatcher's assertion that we just need to dispense with society, is it time to ask whether there is another option, one somewhat less paradoxical, and where the antagonists of the individual and society can lose the incentive to cancel each other out? Can we slightly shift the question so that we ask whether we can build a political system where a collective can function cohesively without the need to wash away diversity. That question might also be put in the converse. How can we build a political system where the infinitely diverse and legitimate interests of individuals are not deemed incompatible with or do not negate the interests of the collective? This slightly modified question might be seen by some as an idealistic pitch towards utopia, with all the overtones of impracticability that implies. But at least it admits that exclusion is not and never will be a solution to social conflict, especially if the exclusions are enlarged to encompass the majority. Once we admit that exclusion can't work, it implies the need to search for a political system which enables a coexistence of self-determining individuals and groups within the wider collective of the nation. More than that, in a nation that might need to resolve issues of colonial dispossession, like Australia, it implies the need to search for a political system which enables a just and peaceful coexistence of sovereignties. The feasibility of establishing such a system is likely to depend at least in part on finding a way to add wisdom into the machinery of democracy. It will depend on our willingness to work together to express the national project and the purpose of the nation in terms that politicians cannot misunderstand or mischievously misrepresent as easily as they might now. If we can devise a vehicle for such expression, we can establish one very important part of the essential terms of trust that should be issued to those we elect. These are terms we might characterise as non-exclusive. And without them, there can be no basis of trust and no capacity to embed the function of elections into a broader process of true democracy so that we can resist the temptation to use elections as a means of exclusion. 
Instead, the democratic process can be expanded to enable self-determination, and this time without destabilising the collective or the state. Practical experiments with this that are currently being conducted by Australian Community Futures Planning have the potential to help Australians and those they elect to rise above politics and evade the uncertainties of the majoritarian democratic exclusion we currently reinforce by confining ourselves to casting votes in elections without specifying terms of trust for those who attain parliamentary and governmental power. If Australians can establish a process for development of non-exclusive terms of trust with those they elect, then there is also potential to release the elected from their servitude to corporate or external powers, a servitude which I can guarantee makes the best politicians miserable. Everyone will be better off, particularly the well-intentioned politicians. In the next parts of this essay, I will set out how Australians can build a wider and truer democratic system that will enable diverse interests and sovereignties to coexist peacefully and productively. In the Uluru Dialogue, First Nations people have given us part of the model as to how that may occur. They have given us the concept of the need for a constitutional right to a voice in our own democracy. Thanks for listening. The next part of this essay will be released on the Australia Together podcast next week. But if readers want to read all four parts now, the full transcript is available on the ACFP website at www.austcfp.com.au forward slash major hyphen essays. Links are in the description below. Links to all the sources and evidence for the claims made in this essay are also available in the transcript. My name's Bronwyn Kelly, and this has been the Australia Together podcast, brought to you by Australian Community Futures Planning. To become involved in planning and building a better future for Australia, subscribe to ACFP at www.austcfp.com.au. Everyone is welcome to participate.